and what an incredible vision he is. When you are able to have Jesus as the center focus of the entirety of your life, what an incredible vision it is when you hold on to Christ no matter what you're experiencing in your life. Will you remain standing as I read for you uh, as we take another turn away from our On Track series? I want to read for you what is often considered a... Uh, maybe a coffee mug verse or a Christian t-shirt verse, but, but I want you to hear these words and I want to ask you, do you believe them? Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says these words. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Do you believe that this evening? Is that a truth that you can grab onto and you can say, this is true no matter what? And with that question, go ahead and have a seat. I'm so happy to be here tonight. In fact, I'll tell you what, I was here last week and, and I could barely squeak in worship. I tried to sing, but I did not have the lung capacity. But this evening was the first time, I don't know how long, that I was able to project and worship with you and sing to the Lord. And it was, it was wonderful. It is such a joy to be back in the family, in the fellowship of those who call upon the name of the Lord. And it's, it's almost providential that we're meeting here tonight. And, and as I come, and, and I'm going to preach tonight, but it's going to be a little different. I'm going to share with you uh, kind of my testimony over the last month or so. And, and, and as I do that, I'm going to share with you an, what I would call an apologetic for God's faithfulness. But, but we're gathering on a, on a historic day, aren't we? T today is the 20th anniversary of that fateful morning when, when, for me, my brother ran into my room and said, America's under attack, and I threw something at him. I said, like, get out of here, you're lying. Until I went and saw what was on the TV. And 20 years ago today, we experienced incredible pain. Incredible loss. Now, I don't know if any of us made it through that day without tears and maybe abundant tears. And that was a day of great suffering. Have you ever suffered? Have you ever suffered loss or pain? Have you ever suffered persecution or, or been soci socially ostracized for your faith? Have you ever suffered sickness? If I'm honest... Uh, I, I probably would have said I've never really suffered sickness before this last month. Most of you know that, that I ended up with COVID. Uh, we got back from, from Texas, and, and after doing an incredible work for a week, ministering to thousands of people, uh, probably too many, and, and I got back and my body started to ache. And I just kind of started telling myself, like all guys do, right? Oh, you know, I'm probably just a little worn down. But, but my body started to ache, and it didn't stop. And then I started to get this little cough, and the little cough turned into much more. And so I took one of those tests, and, and sure enough, I got to join the COVID club. And, and, you know, my family had it. And when my family had it, they had barely any symptoms. My wife lost her sense of taste, and that was about it. My, my oldest son had a fever for, I think, one day. They got 
out of it almost scot-free. And so I was thinking, oh, you know what? This will be just a quick little sickness and I'll be done. <laughs> and I was wrong. What, what, turned, what started with body aches and then a cough ended up being my, my abs being like incredibly painful from all the coughing. And, and then the COVID turned into pneumonia in my lungs where it felt like when I moved or when I coughed, I was getting stabbed. And then y- your body can react really funny to COVID. And so for my body, a lot of things happened. But one of the things happened is I ended up having a blood clot, which changed all of the medication that I was taking for pain, w- w- took away most of the medication I was taking for pain and it it was suffering now I guarantee there are those who have suffered worse than me I am not looking for a suffering merit badge or a, or a poor Mike you you poor thing but 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 I'll tell you it was painful it, it was not fun it, it was it was miserable and it was suffering and and yet This passage that I started with tonight, this passage remains true. When I memorize this verse, I memorize it in a different version. The the version I memorize, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that God causes everything to work for good in your life when you're suffering? Do you believe that everything in your life, God causes it to work for good when you're in pain or when you're in drama or when you're in trauma or when the world around you or maybe even the country around you feels like it's falling apart? I have a simple message tonight. I have one big idea, and then I have three sub-ideas that we're going to walk through. And and I'm going to be very honest. This isn't, like I said, this isn't what I usually do. Usually I grab one text, and we wrestle with one text as faithfully as possible. Tonight I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey. And and the main idea of our journey tonight is very simple. God uses even our suffering for good. I want you to hear those words. Close your eyes for a moment. Listen to those words. I want you to ask yourself if you believe this truth. God uses even our suffering for good. As you open your eyes back up, I want to begin a, a brief journey. The brief journey that is going to really highlight this truth. God uses even our suffering for good. It starts with me in my basement, not feeling great at all. And like most people, sooner or later, when you're facing illness, you know what you start to do is you start to, you start to search your soul. You start to look deep inside. You start to look at the places inside your heart that maybe you've gotten accustomed of ignoring You begin to open up certain doors that you haven't opened up for years and say, what's really going on in my heart here? As I began to do that, here's the first thing that the Lord reminded me of in my suffering. He reminded me how deceptively deep my sin resides. How deceptively deep my sin resides. Early on in, in my bout with COVID, uh, Andrew and I were texting, and I actually went back and I copied the text and I put it in my notes. We were talking about what the Lord was showing me. These are, this is what I wrote to him. I, he, he asked a question about, is the Lord teaching you? I said, absolutely. Here's what I wrote. He says, God has shown me 
how arrogant, stubborn, self-willed, and selfish I am. I wrote, I wrote, I am dead serious. This truth has been ingrained into me. Now, I'll be honest, that's not how I usually think about myself. I mean, generally speaking, when I think about myself, I, I, I think, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I hope you would say that about me too, right? I hope you wouldn't say like, hey, what kind of person is your pastor? And you'd say, you tell you what, he is arrogant and stubborn and self-willed and selfish. But, but generally speaking, I think of myself as, as a pretty good guy. I think about myself as a, as a caring husband. I think about myself as a loving father. I think about myself as a sincere pastor. I want you to realize how much I hated realize, how much I hated being confronted with how deceptively deep my sin is. I started to ask the Lord, Lord, if there's anything that I've done that's causing me this pain, right? Have you ever asked the Lord that? Lord, if there's anything in my life, would you just reveal it to me? And in his kindness, he did. One of the verses that, that came to mind during this, this season was from Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, when the scripture speaks of the heart, oftentimes it's speaking of the thoughts and the intentions that reside inside a person. Here's what it says. It says that our heart is desperately deceptive. Your heart and my heart, it is an expert at deceiving ourselves. You know what it's an expert at? It's an expert at telling you that you're just fine. Well, it covers up your selfish and your sinful and your arrogant intentions. The scripture says, who can understand it? Who can understand the very, the very intentions they have that oftentimes are not aimed at pleasing the Lord, that oftentimes are not aimed at, at caring for someone else, that oftentimes, even if they look great on the outside, they're working the angles of selfishness and arrogance. This is because all of us, we still carry around a, a sinful desire. A, a sinful desire. Now, when we talk about sin, what, what is sin? What comes to your mind when you think of sin? One theologian puts it this way. He says, sin is any failure to confront or to conform to the moral law of God in our act, in our attitude, or our nature. He says, is anything in our lives, even inside of ourselves, that does not conform to God's standard? Another, another theologian put it like this. He says, in essence, and indeed, sin is contrary to God's good pleasure. You ever have any thoughts that are contrary to God's pleasure? You have any desires that are contrary to, to God's good pleasure? 
The scripture speaks of sin in all sorts of descriptive language. If you, were to, if you were to survey the scripture, you would find the scripture talks about our sin in all sorts of ways. It calls our sin a revolt. It calls it an iniquity. It calls it wickedness or disobedience, unrighteousness or transgression. The scripture calls it treachery or rebellion. This is, this is what the scripture gives us as a picture of sin. Uh, can, can we dig a little bit deeper in our understanding of what sin is? Let me, let me give you a few handles as, as if I'm trying to be transparent about what the Lord has revealed in my life. Let me give you a few handles about how to think of sin in your own life, even as you walk around as a pretty good guy or a really nice gal. Let me give you these handles. You, you, you realize sin is a failure to do right. Sin is a failure to do what's right. James chapter 4, 17. I'm going to be brief here. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This happens in the smallest of ways when you're, when you're walking uh, down the street and you see a, uh, maybe a piece of garbage and you say, you know what, I, I should be a I should be a servant to my, my community. I should pick this thing up. But you say, I don't want to touch that thing, and you walk by. You know the right thing to do. But, but it's even deeper than that. If we're talking about our actions, our attitudes, and our nature, it's talking about having an, an internal motivation that is, that is contrary to doing what's right before God. Sin, simply put, it is, it's a failure to do what's right. You could describe it another way also. You could describe your sin as a failure to love. It's not just a failure to do what's right. Your sin and my sin, it, it's a failure to love. To, to love God and to love others. Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus' words here, he says this about the greatest commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let me, let me have a show of hands. Who here perfectly today loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and all their strength? Any, anybody we can applaud today that's done that perfectly? St stand up for us, just, just briefly. We won't applaud too long, but I'll wait. Come on, anybody? Why not? Because if we're honest, deep inside, we know those moments when instead of being loving toward God, instead of honoring the Lord, we, we've chose selfishness. And we've chose our selfish desires. And sin can be called a failure to do right. Sin can be called a failure to love. If you dig even deeper, I think sin can be called a failure to believe. It's a failure to believe. Hebrews 11, this great chapter that describes all of the, or not all, but many of the heroes of the faith. And they live by faith, and they live by faith, and they live by faith. You get to verse 6, and it says, And without faith, without believing, without trust, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe or trust or have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When we sin, 
What we're saying in that moment is that I don't believe God, I don't trust in his way, and I don't trust in his goodness. And so instead of trusting and believing and having faith that God and his ways are best, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to push it to the side, and I'm going to say my way is best. That's what sin is. It's saying, I don't trust you, God. I've got a better plan. I don't trust you, God. I've got a better way. I don't trust you, God. I have a better idea. This is just a a brief overview of what sin is. When you and I sin, it's a failure to do right. When you and I sin, it's a failure to love. And when you and I sin, it is a failure to believe. But, But if we're honest, that means that sin is in you. I know I started by saying that the Lord revealed my own selfishness. And I don't have a supernatural x-ray machine or magnifying glass that I can come up and say, oh, I know what's going on in this heart. Oh, I know what's going on in this heart. I don't have that. But I have what the scripture teaches. First John speaks directly to this, verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's what the scripture says. It says that I am in a room surrounded by sinners. It says that you have a pastor, and not just me, but Andrew who's been preaching, and Stephen Hall, and Stephen, Stephen Klukas that led. You have, you have leaders who are sinners. We all are. And you know, that's not the tragic part. You want to know what the tragic part is? What is really tragic is the lack of acknowledgement of this in the church today. Admitting that we struggle with sin is, it is so rare. When's the last time you told your wife or husband something like this? You know what? I'm really struggling with the sin of greed in the way I'm taking care of our finances instead of being generous. When's the last time you told a trusted Christian friend, you know what, I just need to be honest, I'm really struggling with the sin of lust. And I need prayer. And I need accountability. And I need a brother or a sister to walk by my side and help me through this. Why is it so rare that we say things like that? when it's so often that we sin. Let me say that again. Why is it so rare that we say to one another, here is the sin I'm struggling with, when the scripture is clear that every one of us is struggling with sin? Because we'd rather be known as a good guy and a caring husband and a loving father and a sincere pastor. This is the re- reality of the Christian life. Yet, yet so, so very rarely are we transparent, or let me use a catchphrase from our society, our culture. So rare are we authentic. Are we real? While I was suffering in my mild sickness compared to most suffering, God convicted me of my pride 
in my arrogance, in my desire to always have the answers and to always be right, he revealed to me the, the way I paint a veneer on the front of me and act like everything's great and I got it all figured out when inside there is selfishness and there is frustration and there is anger and I'm working the angles. See, if you were to ask me if I've grown in holiness, I would say absolutely yes. If you were to ask me if I'm, purpose, if, if I'm perfect, I would say absolutely no. I have a feeling if I were to go to you and say, have you grown in holiness in the last year? My, my hope, my assumption is you would say, absolutely yes. But if I were to go to you and say, are you perfect? My expectation is you would say, absolutely no. In fact, if you were to go to the Apostle Paul when he was still walking on the earth, you would find that he said things like this. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Did anybody here ever feel that way? Go down a few more verses, verse 24. Here's what he says about himself. He, he is a church planter and a preacher. He is an apostle to the Gentiles. He is doing more on the face of the earth than anyone else for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Christ. And here's what he says about himself writing to the Romans. Oh, wretched man am I who will save me or deliver me from this body of death. That's authentic. That's real. That's transparent. This is what the Lord showed me. This is the Lord's, my wife likes to use the term two by four. This was the first two by four that I got to feel during COVID as I was at a spot where I wasn't going 90 miles per hour. I wasn't running from one activity to the next where I had to stop and look inside deeper than I usually do. And the Lord showed me how deceptively deep my own sin is. And you're sitting there thinking, well, that's a depressing COVID experience. <laughs> but let me read you the rest of the text that I sent Andrew. The first began with, let me tell you how, how the Lord has revealed how wicked I am. But I continued with that text, and here's what I wrote. It says, but also, God has shown me how gentle and merciful Christ truly is. I tear up writing this. He is so good to me. He is so patient. He is so caring. His love is overwhelming. You see, if, if we're going to be honest tonight, and, and the first truth we're going to look at it is how deceptively deep our sinful hearts can be. We, we need to press even further. And second, we need to see how abundant is the love that Jesus gives. If you're willing to be honest and humble and acknowledge the depth of your sin in that brokenness and in that humility and in that weakness and that arrogance and that selfishness and that sin, when you come to the Lord and you say, here I am in all of my shame, 
he doesn't greet you with a club. He, he doesn't greet you with a finger pointed at you. But instead, he greets you with his finger pointed at the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that was given. Now, one of the greatest passages that describe this comes from Ephesians chapter 2. The first few verses describe what I just told you about the nature of our sin, the nature of our trespass, the wickedness that exists in you and in me. And then you get to verses 4 and 5. I'm going to ask you, close your eyes and allow these words to penetrate as deeply as possible into your heart and into your mind and into your very soul. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace, grace, God's grace. You realize what this passage says about us? This passage says so much. I'm not going to be able to, to, to dig into the depths of it, but, but just surface level understanding of this. Here's what it says. It says that his love and mercy was given to us when we were spiritually dead. He decided to love you and to pour out his grace and his mercy on you when you were a spiritual zero. When there was nothing in you that was impressive or alive or good. It's not because of how great you are that he saved you. It's because he was rich in mercy. It's because of the great love with which he loved you. Not only that, it means that this love and mercy was given when we were enemies of God. You ever had a real enemy? Today we had a baseball game, a rookies game. It's like a machine pitch right before we came here. And, uh, <clears throat> and there was one kid on the other team that I was like, I don't think I like you. And I like most kids, right? He was kind of a, you know, had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He was kind of being rude. And I was like, oh, you know, I, you're not my favorite, right? And it'd be easy to think of that kid as like my enemy, but he's like six years old. So he really can't be my enemy, right? But, you know, here's the deal, right? You and I were true enemies of God. We had set up the entirety of our lives in absolute opposition and enmity and hate toward him. There was, there was not like half of me is good and half of me is get, or bad. And so God likes the half of me that's good, so he decided to save me. The, the scriptures before this says that you were dead in your sin and trespass. It teaches that you were an enemy of God. It says that you were a child of wrath. You were an enemy of God. And God, while you're his enemy, loved you. God will you're his enemy when he should pour out his anger and his judgment and his wrath upon you. Instead, he lavished you with mercy and grace and love. How did God do this? 
Did God just have like a picture of love on, on the shelf somewhere and he walked over and said, you know what? Okay. And he just poured some love on you. Is that, is that how God gives you love? Did God just like wrap up a present of mercy and give it to you and say, hey, would you, if, if you want to open this, there's some mercy in it. How, how did God transfer to you his love and his mercy and his grace? Remember how I said instead of pointing at you, he points to the cross. That's exactly how he gives you this. When Jesus walked this earth, Jesus did not have any sin in him. When Jesus lived this life, when he had hate toward him and enmity toward him and strife toward him and jealousy toward him, he never responded the way I wanted to respond to a six-year-old on the opposing team of our baseball team, right? He never responded the wrong way. He responded perfectly at all times, in all ways, without any sin, without any selfishness, without any arrogance, without any greed, without any lust, without any jealousy, without any hate. And then he took his perfect perfect life, and he willingly climbed upon that cross and died to pay the price for all of your sin and for all of mine. This is why we can be transparent with our sin. This is why we can confess to each other, say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what's attacking me. This is where I'm failing. You want to know why? Because it's all been forgiven by the finished work of Jesus in his death and in his victorious resurrection. And this is the gospel truth. This is what we believe. This is what we cling to. And, and this is what saves us. But, but here's the question. Once you're saved and you start walking in Christ, is there like a limit to that grace? Is there a limit to that mercy? Was it applied when you became a Christian and now it's kind of up to you to figure things out? I, I, love, I love the way James writes in, in James chapter four. He, here he's he's speaking to those who likely have been, the theological word is regenerated. They have been given a new life in Christ. They have trusted the gospel. They have been made alive together in Christ. Look at these words. I'm going to read verses four through six. It's, it's kind of intense. So, so hold on to your seat for a minute if you need to. Here's what James writes. He says, you adulterous people. <laughs> that sounds fun, right? He's talking about their adultery as they have turned their back on loving God and instead they're loving the world. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he, God, yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God jealously yearns to have you close. God jealously yearns to have your affection. He jealously yearns that you love him with all your heart heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And when you don't, you know what you're doing is you're committing spiritual adultery. Now, I said this is intense, but, but look at what it says next. These next few words, they, they might be some of my favorite in all of the scripture. 
As James writes to believers who are not being faithful in their call to love God above all else, here's what he says. Look at the text. It says, but he gives more grace. Can, can you say those words with me together tonight? Let, let's say them together. Here, here we go. Ready? But he gives more grace. I, I feel like these verses should make even the, 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 the most feeble among us stand up and do a backflip off the chair. Do you realize when you are sinning, do you realize when you have an adulterous heart against the Lord, when you, when you are pushing the Lord away and you are pursuing your own agenda, even off on the outside, the veneer looks all sparkly and shiny. Do you realize that in your sin, he gives more grace? Look, 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 finish the verse. It says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I think some of us miss experiencing the grace that God's giving generously. Because instead of saying in a humble way, you know, I'm battling sin. I am not perfect. Instead of saying, here is the way selfishness is, is working its way in my heart and that I, I'm trying to battle against. Here's the way that greed or lust or hate, I mean, we live in a, such a hateful world right now with all the division. Here's the way these things are operating in my heart. Instead of being willing to humbly admit that, you know what we do is in, in our pride, we, we stick, stand up a little taller and we say, I, I'm just fine. I, I got it all figured out. Uh, I'm not really struggling with anything for real. This teaches that this grace is continually given to humble saints. This grace is continually given to humble saints. This abundant mercy and grace, they call us to approach him, loving Jesus above all. But listen, this, this abundant mercy and grace, it calls us to turn away from the things that we love instead of Christ. It calls us to turn away from our lust or our pride or our arrogance. One, one, one night when I was lying in the basement, and, and I got to the point where I couldn't really study. Uh, I, I tried to read and it wouldn't work. It just, I, I, was, I was in pain. I was grumpy. Like I, I tried to read, I couldn't read. I tried to study other things, just nothing was working. And so I, I put on an audiobook. It was by a Puritan, Richard, Richard Sibes, and, and, or Sibs, and the book's called The Bruised Reed. And it's a book all about how Jesus, he, he won't break the bruised reed. The bruised reed is a struggling saint. The bruised reed is a sinner who's fallen down. The bruised reed is the person that, that is battling with themselves. And in the middle of that book, uh, a line passed through my ears. I had to stop and I had to actually find it in the text. Here's what it says. It says, there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. How much sin is in you? With our veneer, we say not much. But if we dig past that, if we get real, how much selfishness is in you? 
How much, how much evil desire is in you? You realize no matter how much exists in you right now in this moment, that there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you or in me. See, I want you to see tonight, as we continue this journey, I want you to see how deceptively deep our sin is. But, but, but beyond that, I want you to see how abundant is the love that Jesus gives. And here's the third point. The third point that we see as we recognize that, that, that God uses even our suffering for good is this. I want you to see how incredibly near Jesus is in suffering. I could have said these words and, and not blinked. I, I could have said these words and believed them truly. But this is what I really, almost in an experiential way, learned in my suffering. As the Lord revealed the depth of my sin, and as the Lord revealed the abundance of his love, even in my, my own rebellion, that's where I found how close Jesus can be in suffering. Look, look, look at what Hebrews 4.15 says. I think this is in your notes. This is speaking about Christ. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is, this is worth highlighting. This is worth underlining. This is worth clinging to. Here, here's what it says about Christ. It says, first of all, that Christ is he's the holy high priest. Now, don't miss this part. It says that Jesus is the high priest. The high priest is the one who makes atonement for the people's sin. He's the one who can make us right with God. And not only that, he is holy. He has been tempted, but he has never sinned. He, he resisted it perfectly. But it also teaches that Jesus is he's like a humble brother. Listen to these words again. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. You realize Jesus understands your weakness. He, he understands your temptation. He, he understands your, your suffering. And in your temptation and in your suffering, you look at Jesus' attitude toward you. It says he has sympathy for you. He, he has care for you. He has concern for you. He, he has love for you. Now, let me, let me just step away from this for a moment. I realize every one of us, we can suffer in all sorts of different ways. Some of us have suffered with sickness. Some of us have suffered with societal pressures. I, I know many people right now who their, their company is mandating things like the vaccine and, and, and they're not willing to do that. And so they're they are suffering under these tensions of, of what's being demanded of them. Some of us have suffered under the sadness of loss where those who are near and dear have gone to be with the Lord. Some of us suffer under Satan's attacks. And even some of us suffer as we struggle with our sin. You realize the scripture doesn't say avoid suffering. You realize the scripture doesn't say flee from suffering. 
You realize the scripture does not promise you that if you trust Christ, you will have a perfect life that is going to be void of all suffering. Instead, you know what the scripture says? Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says, share in it. He says, suffering is something that's meant to be shared. And suffering is something that is meant to be embraced. Something, suffering is something that, that in those moments, you don't push it away, but you say, Lord, I trust that you're here with me in it. But that is so countercultural. That, that is so opposite of everything that has been ingrained into our hearts and minds as, as those who live in the 21st century. I would say that most of us, I, I would say this about myself, we're afraid to suffer. I mean, I'll pass around a clipboard tonight, uh, and I'll say, sign ups for suffering, and I'll pass it around to everyone, right? And then when it comes back to me, you know how many names are going to be on it? None. Who wants to suffer? And so, you know, to avoid suffering, we end up falling into many different traps. Listen to me for a moment here. We fall into the trap of safety, where we try to make sure everything in our life is as safe as possible. So physically, we're never in danger, or financially, we're never in danger, or emotionally, we're never in danger. And so we make sure all of our, all of our safety bubble is perfectly around us so that we never suffer. The other trap is security. We, we make sure that we're protected at all times. We make sure that there's no one who can threaten us in any way whatsoever. And so our security be, becomes a trap that keeps us from ever coming near suffering. Well, what about satisfaction? We fill our lives with entertainment because it brings so much happiness. We fill our lives with, with whatever leisure activity or whatever sports activity. I, I can be guilty of that. And so we, we please ourselves over and over again. And as much as this as we can get, all the while, we're pushing away any kind of suffering. Or what about success? where we work hard every day, where we do our best, where we press forward. And all of this subtly keeps us from any kind of suffering. I think this one hits closest to home for me. I was on that mission trip in Texas. I was dead set that I was going to come back. Saturday night, I had pre-recorded a video. And Sunday morning, I was going to preach that Sunday, even though we got home at like 2 in the morning. And then you know what I was going to do on Monday through Friday? I was going to go serve at VBS, and then I was going to preach the next weekend. And for me, it was I'm going to keep pressing forward, and the Lord put me right on my back. He says, no, you're going to suffer. In the moment you're no longer in the trap of success or of satisfaction or of security and safety, you hear me well, the moment you're no longer in those those traps, and you no longer have that safety bubble around you, and you are raw and naked and bare before the Lord in suffering. That's when Jesus comes, and he shows you how he sympathizes with us in our weakness. That's when the truths that you believe in your mind become real in your life. 
That's when whatever pain you're experiencing, it, it, it no longer is the most important thing because you know the Lord is near. I asked you earlier if you bring, believe these words that God uses even our suffering for good. I think a month ago I would have said I believe that. And I would have said it verbally. And I would have agreed with it mentally. And I would even have some understanding in my heart. But here's what I know after suffering is that Jesus really is close. And he will meet you in your pain. And he will meet you in your sorrow. God uses even our suffering for good. Romans 8.28, let me read this again. It says, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. I want you to look and, and I want you to realize who this is talking about. This isn't talking about everyone who walks the earth. This is talking about those who, here's the two qualifications, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Those are one and the same thing. It's talking about someone who is trusted in the gospel of Christ. If you're here tonight and you have not trusted in the gospel, guess what? This is not true of you. God doesn't promise to use everything for good in your life if you've yet to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you have, this means that God will use everything in your life for good. He'll use the great moments of happiness and of success and joy, and he will use the terrible moments of suffering and sickness or suffering and loss, just like we mourned 20 years ago. In your life, if you've trusted him, he will use everything everything for your good. Let's take this to the furthest extension for just a moment. God will even use your death for good. I don't think I was close to dying with COVID. I, I had to go to the hospital, but I didn't have to go and, and, and be admitted. I, my wife told me there was one day she was really scared. Maybe that was true. Maybe I just was being a baby and in a lot of pain, right? But I, I don't think I was close. But listen, the thought crossed my mind. You can't help but having the thought cross your mind in those moments. And here's the reality. For, for me to live is Christ and to die Is what? To live is Christ. It's the joy of Christ. It's the life in Christ. It's the suffering in Christ. And for me to die, even if it would, it would break my heart, here's, here's where I would be standing right now in this moment in the presence of my Savior with lungs that don't hurt, with a voice that actually works. To die is gain. You realize the worst thing you can go through in this life, God will use for good. Do you realize there's nothing you can experience on this earth that, or even in the cosmos that will separate you from the love of God? That's where Romans 8 ends. Look with me, fast forward. Verse 38 and 39, and then I'm gonna pray for us. 
Here's what it says. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize that COVID can't separate you from God's love? Do you realize that political division can't separate you from God's love? Do you realize that wars against other nations can't separate you from God's love? Look at what it says. It says that your death or your life. It says that angels or demons can't separate you from the love of God. It says that nothing that exists right now or nothing that comes into existence can separate you from God's love. It says that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This means that you're suffering. This means that you're pain. This means that your sorrow and your anxiety and whatever else you're dealing with will never be able to separate you from the abundant love in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that this evening? As you sit here in your own suffering, as each of us are dealing with who knows what, if you've got things going on in the back of your mind and you've got weights tied to your heart and you have sorrow and suffering and loss, do you believe that God is present even in that? And will you believe that God can use even your suffering for good? Great Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I thank you even for this last month and the, and the suffering that I experienced. And I, I know it's minimal compared to most, but Lord, I thank you for those in this room who love you and who are called according to your purposes. I thank you for those in this room who have trusted in the gospel, who have turned to Christ, who have believed in his death and resurrection and repented of their sins. I thank you that for every one of us, no matter how deep our suffering is, no matter how great the pain is, no matter how heavy the burden is, that you have promised to use everything in our lives for good. Father, I pray that this truth would not just be a truth that we can verbally say, that we can mentally believe. Father, I pray that by the gentleness of Christ, as he draws near to each of us, that we would experience that. That we would know that Christ is near. That we would, we would sense that Christ cares. That we would believe that you are faithful no matter what. And God, as we, as we experience that, I pray that you would cause joy to well up inside of our hearts. As we experience that, I pray that you would cause peace to saturate every thought we have 
so that no matter what we experience, we would walk close to you, knowing that you're good. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful and great Savior. Amen.